Welcome to Souls Harbor's weekly podcast. We believe that God has called us to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, help them grow to be like Jesus, and involve them in reaching lost people. Listen now to this week's message. Hey everybody, it's Wednesday night again. I see we've got a few people online with us tonight on the feed. Welcome to our Bible study. We're going to get started here in just a moment. Let me see who all we've got out here with us tonight. I see Ruthie's out there. And we got Joe Colborn and Mac. It looks like Pat and Mac are with us. Bill and Jan, I think I saw. There's Jenny. Good to see you guys tonight. I don't know if I'm missing anybody or not. I think I saw Sandy and Brenda. Welcome. Glad to have you guys all with us tonight as we get into our sixth session of why we need the Bible. So we're going to uh, pray and we're going to jump on in this tonight. Uh, We have got a lot of... uh, passages of scripture we want to look at tonight. This this particular session, it's really hard to do it justice without spending some time going into God's Word. So we're going to do that tonight. We may actually end up making this a two-week instead of a one-week. We'll see how fast we progress through this along the way. So, hey, you guys join with me in prayer here tonight, and uh, then we're going to jump right in. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray for your blessings uh, up on our time of study together tonight. We pray that you help us to understand how the Word of God applies to culture and how it works in our lives and through our lives. Guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's jump in this to, into this tonight. Um, we are going to start, like we do each week, with just a few minutes of review. So here's some of the reasons we need the Bible we've talked about in the past few weeks. It speaks with authority. It speaks with God's authority. Um, it provides a moral foundation. Uh, it brings blessing and success. We talked about that a bit. It makes families uh, stronger and healthier, which is important and a big deal. Uh, it speaks to society. That was last week's conversation. The Bible speaks to society and helps us keep society uh, going and moving in a positive, healthy direction. And tonight, we're going to look at the Bible Guides culture, and it's going to be somewhat uh, related to what we discussed last week with society. There'll be a lot of overlap, maybe, but also some unique stuff. So let's jump right into this tonight. What is culture? I think that's the place we've got to start. And I I tried, I spent a little bit of time trying to get some examples and some ways to explain the idea of culture to you. Um, culture, many times we think of it as kind of that highbrow, uh, it's going to be that art that you, you know normal people don't like to watch or go look at, or, or music that normal people don't like to um, listen to, whatever normal means, okay? Uh, but it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot deeper than that. That's, that's not really a good definition of culture. So how does the Bible impact or guide culture? Well, let's start with this. Culture includes some things here. And let me give you some examples. I actually took a little bit of time this afternoon and wrote down some examples. Culture is... Uh, it, it includes social norms within a group of people. It includes the laws and the language and the religion and the, the architecture and the dress and the music and the arts and the entertainment. Uh, it can be humor. Uh, all of those things that a group might have. So let me give you some examples. Uh, social norms within kind of the Western world. Uh, a handshake. Normally, if you meet somebody, there would be a handshake. Now, you all know, like me, that that was all pre-COVID, and now we're not supposed to handshake. Shake, um, But even within our Western society pre-COVID, there were those that it might be a handshake, but handshakes vary depending on who's shaking hands, how you shake hands. 
Uh, it might be a fist bump. Now it's supposed to be, I guess, an elbow bump, uh, j- just to control the virus type of thing. But but that would be a piece of culture. Uh, eye contact, when you meet somebody and you shake their hand or you greet them. You, in, in Western culture, there is uh, an expectation of direct eye contact. Where you go to other cultures around the world, uh, they may expect you, they may consider that rude, they may expect you, and it may be culturally appropriate to look down or not look eyeball to eyeball with somebody. Uh, how about this? Um, it, it, it would include such things as uh, what's considered appropriate dress. It would be such things as appropriate dress. And, and we've seen a lot of this change. Appropriate dress in church. Uh, there was a day when it was suit and tie, uh, always. And then it was, um, you know, then it became just a coat with no tie. And then it became dress slacks and a dress shirt. And then it became blue jeans. And and, and as I talk through these, in many of these, I'm not necessarily describing right, wrong. This isn't a matter of judgment. This is just showing you that culture is, it's all of these norms, all these expectations that that a, a certain group of people will have. We could talk about it in the terms of dating. Uh, what is the cultural expectation when you go on a first date? Uh, do you go in and meet the parents before you go on that date, assuming you're not an, an, an adult adult at this point? How about marriage? Uh, culturally, do you are you still expected to go and ask dad uh, for the, the permission, the blessing to marry his daughter? Uh, culturally, there was a time when that was absolutely always expected. Uh, but maybe that's not so much anymore, but that would be a cultural norm. How about when you go on a date? Uh, is it expected you hold the door or is that considered rude? Uh, first date, do you pay? Does she pay? Do you pay each each pay? How, how, all of those are pieces that go into culture. Language is another piece that's cultural. Um, slang that we use. Uh, we, you know, we talk about somebody or something being cray-cray, being crazy. Uh, you could talk about something being on the DL, being on the down low. You could talk about things like throwing shade or calling somebody or something vanilla. I mean, those are all slang terms that are a part of, of culture. What we consider appropriate language would be cultural. What is considered a curse word? What is considered acceptable? Those are all cultural. Religion is cultural. Uh, how we dress would be cultural. Just think about this with me. Um, somebody from Texas wanders into Indiana uh, and they're dressed as would be appropriate in Texas, my guess is it wouldn't be hard to pick them out of a group of people. You stand the person from Texas next to somebody that is from the hood, and I promise you um, there's going to be a very real difference, and you're going to be able to identify which is which. And again, this isn't a judgment thing to say one is better than the other, but these are all cultural things. Uh, we could talk about music. We could talk about things like Johnny Cash, versus uh, Beyonce or, or Rihanna. Uh, we could talk about things like art, street art, uh, graffiti uh, versus magazine art, and, and what's acceptable on... T- we even have t-shirt art today. You know, what's what's an acceptable... Uh, we could talk about poetry or uh, prose. Um, a lot of it gets put on t-shirts and hats today. Those are all cultural things. We could talk about entertainment, movies, football, what's an appropriate sport, what's an acceptable sport, what what is the sport of America, all of those things. Comedy, humor, uh, we've got Jeff Foxworthy as redneck comedian, we've got Chris Rock, Kevin Hart as uh, not so much redneck comedian. All of those things are cultural and, and, and I give you a lot of examples there because I really want you to get a feel for what we're talking about tonight and what we're saying is the Bible guides culture. Now, maybe you're thinking, why does the Bible need to guide in any way 
whether or not or how we watch football or how we watch basketball or how we have humor. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's start with this question. What happens to culture when it has no boundaries? What happens to culture when it has no boundaries? And this is one of those places to really get to it. We have to go to some scripture. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 tonight and read along, follow along with me as I read this. And I'm going to read several screens here. So hang with me as I read these. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there's a cultural piece to this. And I, I know that, that there is a theological question out there that people have different views on about who were the, the daughters of men and who were, more importantly, the sons of God. And I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to go down that path tonight. I want you to see the cultural piece of this. It says, they took as their wives any they chose. Culturally, they were at a place where there was no boundary set for who uh, you would marry or who you would step into a family relationship with. So that would be a cultural thing. Let's read a little bit further here. It goes on in verse 5 and says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, mankind, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And we see the, the, the answer to the question, um, where does culture go without boundaries? Well, oftentimes, most times, because man's heart is by nature wicked, uh, you know, we have to work to be good, not work to be evil. We see in this first instance, all the way back in Genesis 6, mankind came to a place where God saw the intention of his heart was bad, evil all the time. Let's look at another passage in Genesis. Genesis 11. Um, now the whole earth had one language, and as people migrated from the east, they found a, pla a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So we got a cultural thing there, architectural thing, okay? They come and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit them for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. So we've got a cultural thing there. We've got the first, one of the first cities being built and we've got a tower. But look at the spin, the twist, the direction that the heart of man takes this very thing. With its top, the tower that they built, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These are, if you've ever seen the pictures, ziggurats, they call them. They're, they're, they're pyramids. They're um, like the Mesopotamian pyramids, and, and they have steps. And what they were was man's attempt to raise himself, lift himself to the place that he thought God was, to raise himself to the level of being God. So culture steps in, and culture without boundaries, we begin to see that it's a thing where man has a tendency to just take it to some not-so-good places. They were going to raise themselves to heaven and make a name for themselves, a name like unto God is what we can infer in that. What, uh, another passage in Genesis 11, uh, let's just read a little further. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are, are one people and they have all one language, culture, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose will be now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, and there 
and let us go down and there confuse their language and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What happens when culture develops and grows and is given reign to develop any way it wants to with no boundaries, no God influence in it. We, we see it there. Man oftentimes very quickly veers off into a direction that is just evil and contrary to what is best for man and best or, or, or most appropriate for God. We, we can see it also in a couple other passages we won't go deep into tonight. Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Where, there were those that had become so confused culturally uh, that they actually called what was evil good and good was evil. We saw it in the times of the Romans, the Roman Empire. The Christians of that day were actually um, criticized, chastised, and persecuted because they were considered atheist, because they didn't serve all the gods of the pantheon. Um, they were considered, um, they were just considered evil people because they didn't do many of the things that the Romans considered appropriate, uh, which would have been temple prostitution, for example, as a part of their worship, and a whole list of other things that we look at and we think today, how could they call that good? But they did. And we're even told in the New Testament that as we approach the last days and latter days and we get closer to the return of Christ, that we're going to see this, this earth once again make that metamorphosis, make that transition, if you will, and, and once again call good evil and evil good. We see it in Judges 17 and a couple other places in Judges where it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what happens whenever culture is allowed to run without boundaries? Well, let's just look at it in our, our current events, our current context, and I just want you to think with me. I, I, I just want you to think about the world around us and where we are now versus where we were, depending on your age, let's just talk 10 years ago, 20 years ago. If you're older, a little older than that, maybe go back 30 years or 50 years. Where are we today culturally and all those things I discussed earlier versus where we were in the past? What direction have we gone overall? Social standards? Have they become more or less godly, righteous, or holy? Humor, has it become more appropriate um, or has it become more coarse and ungodly? Language, how we talk, uh, how we dress, how we present ourselves, art and entertainment. And I think, guys, you can you can see without a whole lot of effort that, that culture has made shifts, moves not towards God, but away from God. And that is why we need the Bible, one of the reasons that we need the Bible. So let's do this tonight. Let's talk for a moment. Let me just let me just teach for a minute on how the Bible influences culture, because I believe many Christians have a, a, a wrong perspective on this. I, I think we've 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 misunderstood how the Bible influences culture. So let me start out by making a statement here. It does not influence culture by setting the standards that the world will obey. Now, we in the West are probably the worst offenders uh, with this in, in believing this to be true. And there's a reason for that, because we in America have grown up in a nation, uh, many of us, that in large part, even though we may not have truly been Christian in the sense of having, having a relationship with God, uh, we were Christian in the sense that we took the standards, the biblical standards, and even if we never attended church, never prayed, didn't have a relationship with God, as a rule, they were considered cultural, uh, societal standards. 
So we tend have, have tended over the last 200 years to get ourselves into a place where we just assume that everybody in culture, Christian or non-Christian, ought to, to live according to the biblical standards. Now, I'm not arguing that the world wouldn't be a better place if they did. I think America is great today. One of the reasons is because we have done that for centuries and for decades and for generations in large part. And we've certainly missed in some very real places as well. But humanity as a whole over time, not just talking about America in the last 100, 150 years. Listen, there's a saying, haters are going to hate. Let me tell you, sinners are going to sin. Okay, so the Bible doesn't influence culture by setting a standard that we as Christians ought to expect non-Christians, the world, to live up to. They're just not, as a rule, going to do it. We've been so blessed in America to live in very unique times, and, and unfortunately, those times have come and they've now gone. And we're going to see our, our culture uh, outside of Christianity become much more like culture in Greece, culture in Rome, culture in most other societies uh, over time, where it's just, to put it just bluntly, it's, it's wicked. It's wicked. So how does the Bible influence culture? Well, there is an answer to that, but the first place to start is it doesn't set standards the world will obey. And let me just give you a scripture to support that. Okay, this is out of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and he wrote something in verse 9 that I think is applicable to this. There's a principle here, so I want you to see this. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now look what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the sexually immoral that aren't Christians, I, he says, I didn't mean that. I didn't wasn't telling you don't not or don't associate with them. He said, I'm not telling you to not associate with the the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters of the world of the non Christians, since in order to do that you would have to go out of the world. Paul, Paul there's a principle there. Paul understood um, and accepted that. Listen, haters are going to hate, sinners are going to sin. Okay, that's just a reality. Uh, how does the Bible influence culture? Well, here's how it influences culture. Get this tonight. It, it, it does it by setting standards Christians are to obey. We are to obey. Let me go back to Corinthians again. Let's look at this. Paul also said in the same chapter, he said, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. And not even to eat, which in their context meant not even to have a deep relationship with them, with, with such a one. Um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So I'm not telling you that because non-Christians live like non-Christians in sin, that there won't be consequences and God won't have justice and there won't be judgment. There will be, but that judgment comes from God someday and it's not meant to come from those of us that are Christians. We're to judge those inside the church, those inside the family of faith, okay? Um, God judges those outside, and he says, and, and Paul says, that, but you judge those inside, so purge the evil person from among you. So how does the Bible influence culture? So, so get, get this. Please grab a hold of this truth tonight. The Bible influences Christians first, and we then are to influence culture. So get that. Christ, sinners, I mean the world, sinners, non-Christians are not sitting out there as a rule 
reading the Word of God, saying, oh yeah, I see that that's the way culture is supposed to go. I see that's the way I'm supposed to talk. I see that's the way I'm supposed to live. I, I see that I shouldn't be saying that, thinking that, looking at that. They're, they're not doing that. The Bible isn't influencing them directly. What the Bible should be doing is it should be directly influencing us Christians who then go out there into the world, and we are the ones that influence culture. And I think sometimes we miss that, that, that reality. Give you a minute to process that while I take a drink of water. Let's look at 1 Peter 4 tonight. He says, he, he teaches the same principle. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Talking to Christians now. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He goes on and says, For it is time for judgment, now get this, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will those, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And look at this verse 18, and, and I think we Christians miss this sometimes. We don't appreciate the importance of we setting a standard culturally and in other ways as well. If the righteous is scarcely saved, if you Christian, if me Christian, if, if I barely live up to the righteousness and the holiness of God, well then what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? If the Christian standard is at a nine, the world standard is probably going to be at a six. But if the Christian standard is, a, is at a six, then probably the world standard is going to drop to a three. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? We have a responsibility because if we barely make it into heaven, if we barely make it in a relationship with God, why do we expect that society is going to gain anything from us? What's going to be the fate of the culture around us? How does the Bible influence culture? It influences culture by influencing us. So let's talk about tonight the Christian as an influencer. Um, Matthew says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, Jesus said this to, to, to the church of the day, uh, or, or his followers of the day, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, or the religious people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of just being somebody that shows up to church regularly, although I encourage you to do that, if that's all your righteousness entails, if your righteousness starts at 9.15 on Sunday morning and ends at the end of service on uh, later that day, and it doesn't carry over into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and throughout the week, if it never gets outside of the walls of the church, then your righteousness, my righteousness under those conditions, is no different than that of the Pharisees and the scribes and don't miss this. The Word of God says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How does the Bible influence culture? It influences, influences it through Christians. And Scripture talks about us Christians being salt and light. Now, I, I, I want you to get this tonight, okay? So, so please listen really closely to this. I, I want you to understand the meaning of, of salt and light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. A couple of cultural things that help this mean more. When I think of salt, I, like you, probably think of the salt that sits in my cabinet in a salt shaker. 
that I sprinkle on my fish or I sprinkle on my vegetables or whatever to give it a little bit of flavor. Well, salt was certainly used for that purpose in the days of Jesus when this writ was written, but salt was also used uh, as a preservative. It was salt that preserved foods because they didn't have refrigeration. So, so we are to be as salt. We are a preservative. We preserve culture. We keep culture from getting too far off base, off track, into evil, bad directions. The church, the Christians, the, the, the Christian church is meant to do that by setting our standards, our, our uh, righteous standards, high. And not turning around and being judgmental against those that don't live up to God's word, but rather living a life that is an example to them. We preserve culture. Now, and, and, and also get this piece of it, okay? In order for salt to have any impact or any effect at all, think about this. If my salt is sitting in my cabinet, I can have all the salt in the world. But unless it actually touches the food, it's not going to flavor it. You can have all the salt in, in big containers you want to pack your food in, and unless that salt actually comes in contact, and I mean real serious contact with that food, it's not going to preserve it. So Christian, if we are truly going to flavor culture, if we're going to preserve culture, then we have got to be in, engaged with culture. We've got to be in contact with culture. We've got to be engaged and in contact with people who themselves are not Christians. And one of the problems we have today is we've lost so much culture because we Christians got to a place where we felt very comfortable, even, even almost... Um, commanded, we felt commanded by God, which was just wrong, that we should pull back and separate ourselves from the world. And the reality is we're meant to be salt to the world. And to do that, we've got to be engaged in contact with sinners, with the world. So we are meant to be salt, okay? But there's another piece to this, and it's the light piece. Let me read this. You are the light of the world. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we preserve? How do we flavor? We don't do it by going out and, and, and becoming judgmental because sinners act like sinners because sinners sin. Okay, And going out and saying, you shouldn't live like that, you shouldn't do that, you should live up to God's word. They're not going to live up to God's word. They aren't in relationship with God. The way we do it is by being the light, by going out in ourselves, living a life that is righteous, and letting them see the light of our light shine. You say, how do you do that? Well, they see the blessing that comes upon us because of the choices we make. They see the joy that comes upon us because of the way we choose to live. They see the peace that comes in the middle of the storm because we make Jesus the center of our world. We become light, not by going out and pointing a finger and, and being con condemnatory or, or condemning them or judgmental against them, but we become a light when we go out into the world and live our lives in relationship with Jesus. Because there's something special. I, I preached it Sunday. We're blessed. We're blessed when we walk in relationship with Jesus. So how does the Bible impact um, culture? It does it through you and it does it through me. Let me just take a few minutes and let's just talk about, as I, I, I begin to move into this last piece of this, let's talk about what it means to influence uh, culture. We have to be countercultural, okay? There was a time where to be countercultural meant to be against government, against uh, society. It meant to be against 
uh, organized society, organized anything, and, and, and I get that. And if you're from that era, that's not what I'm talking about tonight. To be countercultural is to go a different direction than what the mainstream culture wants to go. So let's just talk about that for a few minutes in the context of what does it look like to be a countercultural Christian with regards to social standards or humor or language or dress or art or entertainment or any of those things. Let's look at some scripture tonight. Romans gives us some direction about this, uh, and, and, and I'm gonna, this is going to lead into a, a place that I, I see we as Christians need to really be careful. Romans 1, 28 says, Since the world did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We talked about that last week. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And certainly we better not be any of those things if we're going to be salt and light. But I want you to see another piece of this. It goes on and says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those practice, who practice such things deserve to die et eternal death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And here's where I believe if we're going to be countercultural, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't give approval to immoral cultural activities, cultural standards by how we engage with them. Okay? I mean, we've got to be life on life with people. And we got to be life on life uh, with culture if we're going to influence influence it and we're going to preserve it, okay? Not backing off from that at all. But we have to use a lot of wisdom. We have to be careful what we expose ourselves to. We have to be careful how we engage and interact. We have to be careful that when we engage and as we interact, it's not seen as explicit or implicit approval for a, a, a lifestyle or an activity or language or a movie or entertainment or whatever, although it may be us showing appreciation, love, and relationship to the person who's doing those things. Okay, So we, we have to be careful by, by engaging that we don't lose our countercultural nature, if you will. Um, what movies will you watch? What TV shows will you watch? What is acceptable in those places? What language will you uh, allow yourself to be around? How far does it go? Now, listen, sinners are going to sin, okay? It's going to happen. Language is going to be what it is. I, I don't, because I may be around it, doesn't mean that I have to participate in it. But it also doesn't mean just because I may be around it when I'm dealing with a real living human being doesn't mean that I automatically have to make it a part of my entertainment diet. There are, there are points, there are, are places, there are levels, language and activities and actions that we each one have to let the Holy Spirit guide us in this. Okay, that's far enough. I'm not willing to go any further than that. There's the line in the sand. This is not entertainment for me anymore. This is propagating some kind of lifestyle that I'm not willing to propagate. Um, I'll be glad to have relationships with people who are sinners, but I'm not going to make this something that I call entertainment. And we have to be careful that we find that balance. Where is that balance? Listen, at the end of the day, you and I will each one stand before God and give answer. And we each have the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who if we're listening to him, he will help us with that. But we need to be listening to him. Let's look at another piece of this. Colossians 3 says, Be imitators of God and walk in love. How are we countercultural? Well, sexual immorality would be certainly be one of those places. Sexual immorality, 
Uh, we're to walk in love, sexual immorality, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. L- listen to me. Relationships in Christian um, Christian relationships ought to be very different than those that are non-Christian. We're not going to stand in judgment and condemnation of those that aren't Christians, but we are going to live a life that's different. Our dating relationships are going to be different. Our, our, our close relationships are going to be different. Our friend relationships are going to be different. Our marriage relationships are going to be different. And if we're living them according to the Word of God, the difference that is a part of them is going to make them stronger and healthier, and there is the light that will shine. So how are we countercultural? How can we be countercultural? Colossians goes on in verse 4 and says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. We as Christians, if we're going to be countercultural, there are just jokes we don't tell. There are just things that we don't say. There are just phrases that we don't use because we make a choice that we're going to be countercultural. Um, uh, let's read just a little further. Ephesians 5 gives us this. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with any of them. We're not to even partner up with those things, even though we still have to be life on life with those that do those things. We're told in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. We're made in the image of God. The things that come out of our mouth need to give glory to Him. They need to bring honor to Him. They need to be thankful. They need to be uplifting. We have to be careful that we don't let the language come out of our mouth become obscene or filthy or inappropriate. And we're living in a day and age. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get real here for a minute, and we're just about done. I'm gonna bring this to a close. I, I remember in the '80s there was a period of time um, where we used to laugh at a group of California uh, teenagers. They called them valley girls. Everything was like this and like that. And like became a word that just got shoved in the middle two or three times of every phrase. Like this and like that and like, and we just laughed at them. And what I'm finding today is there's a new word that's being used in the same way. And it's a word that I, as a pastor and I, as a Christian, I won't even say, but it starts with an F and ends with a K and you all can figure it out from there. And it's become, it's become the word that has no meaning. It's used when I'm angry. It's used when I'm happy. It's used when I'm wanting to uh, attack somebody. It's used when I have nothing else to say. It's used in every sentence. It's used in every instance. It's used in all places. It's become that word that's just become a filler word. And it has implications that we as Christians need to be really careful um, that we don't use it. Okay. Uh, and I know the argue can, argument can be made that there was a time culturally where it was perfectly acceptable in, in culture. If you go back to Victorian England, I get that. It was no different than somebody saying the word sex today. But let me just say the obvious. We're not living in Victorian England now. That We're not in that culture. We have to be careful what we let come out of our mouth, um, especially at the cost of offending God. That word is something that's meant to be intimate between a man and woman. 
Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's there. It's something that's meant to be special. It's something that in many ways scripturally is defined as holy. It's not to be a swear word, a curse word, or anything else. And I will get off my soapbox for the moment, but I'm going to tell you, I believe it to be true. And we have got to be very careful in what we let come out of our mouth. Let's keep going with this because I'm bringing this to a close tonight. How do we avoid being drawn into the cultural norms of our time? Well, I'm going to give you one passage for this. It's Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. How do you keep from being pulled in? Be careful what you dwell on, what you think on, what you relax with, what you're entertained by. Be careful what you put in because at the end of the day, that's what will come out. There's one more piece to this, and it's this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Not only do we need to be careful what we put in to our minds and our hearts and through our eyes and our ears, the music we listen to, the entertainment we see, um, we need to be careful what we practice. Many of the things I just described to you. That's it for tonight. How does, how do, why do we need the Bible? We need the Bible because the Bible guides culture and culture needs to be guided. But we need to understand how it happens and we need to be, realize we're a big part of how it happens and be that part, be that person, be that difference for somebody. Next week, we are going to wrap up this series uh, with The Bible Impacts the Marketplace. Uh, we're going to talk about that next week. I've got some scriptures there. If you care to go ahead and engage and read ahead a little bit, those will be the many of the scriptures that we look at. When we're done with that, we're going to jump into our next series, which will be Jesus in the book of Revelation. And I know you guys are going to really enjoy that. Hey, I'm going to sign off tonight. You guys have a great week. I appreciate you jumping in and being a part of our feed tonight, a part of our study. I, I hope God has um, has encouraged you, inspired you, challenged you a little bit. And uh, you guys have a great week, and I will see you soon. God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you're looking for a church home or are interested in what God is doing through Souls Harbor, visit us at www.soulsharborag.com. If you have an encouraging story of what God has done in your life through these podcasts, please share it with us at sharbor at indy.rr.com.